You're listening to a podcast from the Columbia Journalism Review. On this episode, Emily Bell, director of Columbia's Tau Center for Digital Journalism, will be talking to Paul Barry. He's the founder and CEO of Rebel Mouse and Soho Tech Lab. He was a key player in the development of the Huffington Post. At what point did you join HuffPo? Did you... So it was um, six years ago, so yeah. it's like 2006. Yeah. So they were a year into HuffPost. Yeah. Um, there were 15 employees. Yeah. Two people on my team. Yeah. Um, three million unique visitors a month. Right, yeah. Um, and 60 million page views a month by Google Analytics. Right. And then just as a zoom forward on that at acquisition by the same exact measure of Google Analytics. Yeah. We were 55 million uniques. Yeah. Um, and um, about 700 million page views. And then today as I pass it off, it's yeah. 130 million uniques and 2 billion page views. Tell us about scaling that technically. So what did you get when, what, what did you find when you got there? How did you build onto it and how did you manage to achieve that scale? Because that's some trick. Yeah, it was, um, it was a lot of work, <laughs> that's for sure. I, you know, we don't have, I've always been adverse to embracing methodologies wholesale. And a lot of these methodologies come at the time with a ton of marketing effort and CEOs tend to like, why aren't we waterfall? Why aren't we rub? Why aren't we? And then the, my favorite is agile because it's such a clever marketing term. What do you not want to be agile? And you want to be agile as an adjective, but I don't think that process describes being agile, the adjective. So I think that's a mistake a lot of people make is not being dynamic and flexible to the situation and the people around you and instead like I have this methodology and so if there is a methodology that comes close to embracing our nature it's the lean startup. Right. Um, but um, that came out later we were already deep in it and I think there's there's some things where we also stray off. But sure. So when you think about scaling, a part of it was how to put together a team. And then part of it was literally the technical challenges that we had along the way. Um, and then another part of it was also the product and how, how did we scale the product. So tell us about the technical uh, aspects of it first, because lots okay. of people think it's the secret to how the Huffington Post was so uh -huh. successful. So what, 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 did, what did you do? I mean, I think in the secret of success, yes, I'm, I'm very proud of our uptime. I'm proud of the speed that the, we load a ridiculous amount on the page in any modern browser. If you use IE7, good luck. But I think good luck across the web. But any modern browser. So um, that was incredibly important as that we wouldn't be held back by the servers failing. Um, but um, media companies are lucky in that a lot of the content is static. So if you architect your code from the beginning around a global CDN like Akamai, and you're cons constantly religiously staying to that, that means that if you do get a front page link from Yahoo, and it's the hottest link they've seen in a month, and that's the biggest link you can get on the internet. That's four million, five million page views an hour um, to one URL. That should affect your servers. That event should affect your servers only as, like, in a minor way more than any other day because you've used the, the uh, content distribution network as a CDN. And, uh, and that was an important, there's a lot to it of making that work really well, but that was part of the scaling challenge. The much more difficult stuff was like elections growth, a big event, something like a Nancy Giffords tragedy, a tsunami. Like those big events that would suddenly you'd have every editor on board like a maniac 
Every blogger who's ever blogged suddenly blogging and the commenters, which is the most dynamic and large scale, going crazy at the same time if you take a Nancy Gifford-like event was very difficult um, because on top of it, your moderation just suddenly got way more challenging. So, so just to be specific about because you were on a, you were on an empty, a movable type platform yes. when you got so there. So it's but, my sequel yeah. that's the heartbeat of it all. Right. And it's kind of like, that's like the core thing that if that part is not pumping blood, then the entire system dies underneath it. So one of the first challenges was that we just had a single MySQL server. And when I came and we didn't have the team to understand how to do master-slave replication, um, which involves a lot of also how do you think about it on the code level that you want to send queries to the slaves instead of the master and minimize your load to the master and play that game. One thing that we did in election year that really helped, just the, I'm a dirty realist, <laughs> so surviving it was kind of like, especially because we did not, I could not just buy more servers. We were really limited financially and that became a huge advantage for us. For example, we had no product group, and we can get into that later, but that was an enormous advantage that came out of what seemed like not having enough money. But was a, uh, and so one of the things that was really, you know, in that scaling in election year before we got the money to add more scale, etc., it was kind of like I was captain of a submarine where leaks could happen, and then the way to keep the entire submarine alive was to like shut off that room. And so there was a, there's a site config thing that the icon is a scuba tank, <laughs> and it's basically being able to shut off little pieces so that as you stress this whole thing, you stop the stress there, and that's a minor piece of the site, and you wanna get it back up as quickly as you can, but it's not disastrous to have it down. And so we had a lot that helped us survive by doing those things. And I highly advise that as a startup growing and ripping at the seams that there's little things that are really cool features but that you could take down. And so to the most drastic thing, if the MySQL mass main server crashed, then we could turn comments off for that 15 minutes while we reboot and then at least you're still reading the news and it has a nice little message that says our comment system will be back up in a minute. So there's a lot of things like that that anticipate the dirty reality of like tearing at the seams. But when Oak invested, we were able to, um, what, I mean that was that critical moment where everyone wondered if Huff, what will happen after the elections? Like it was always, they were always said, well, of course you're growing, it's elections. But it was three months after elections. It was like really in that December and January timeframe where we continued to grow like never before. And that validated and then Oak put the $25 million in. So what, what, what powered that growth? Because I remember that point and seeing your figures going past the Washington Post. Yes. You know, and the kind yes. of, the, 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 and the big, I guess, mythology or the thing that um, we were also interested in was, you know, how do you do that? How do you manage that traffic load? What was the kind of global strategy at that point? And tools kind yeah, of end yeah. look like? Yeah, so um, I would not have been able to pull off everything I did with elections if I had chosen just to use New York and American developers. Um, I was born in Mexico, my mom's Mexican, my wife is Bulgarian, and I always knew international would mean a lot to me in my career. Um, and so I had started working on these concepts before HuffPost, but HuffPost was the place that at the, at, in the most highlighted way proved it at scale. Um, and uh, it's funny because people, I've been thinking about it a lot because it was such an enormous advantage to us and it's going to be core to what I'm doing with Rebel Mouse and the labs is that um, people in, there's very few people who are doing it right and I think there's a few reasons that kind of come together for it. One is that technical people and product people 
designers, developers, engineers. They, it's funny, but this whole issue has been staged as outsourcing, as the word, which has a it's loaded with bad connotations. Right? We go back to like the all the Americans who lost their jobs theme immediately. And developers and designers, their gut reaction is like, oh, you're trying to find somebody who will do this at a quarter of the price. And they emotionally don't help it flourish. My experience was that I had built the internet business for Palo Alto Software. And that included building parts of Yahoo and Wall Street Journal, the small business sections, etc. We almost sold the company, but the 2001 crash happened and I was like ready to move on to the next thing in life. And one thing that had been bugging me was the thought that I should be living and working in Mexico, having been born there. And I went back and making the story as short as I can, I realized that I was very American in how I did business and that I, it was so hard when I was so passionate about what I was doing to talk about Chiapas and Marcos and soccer. For so long, I was dying to talk about this stuff we could build together. And so I started looking in the Bay Area and in New York for a job where I could be a lead developer because that was like, I used to be a lead developer. So you could have gotten me for 25 bucks an hour in Oaxaca then and I would have lived a great life and I would have killed it, really, to be honest. Oaxaca would have been very nice. It's oh, it's a, a great beautiful place. place. And I, 25 nice. an hour, I was going to live fine. I was going to be absolutely fine. Nobody really took that leap with me. And then I've made it a mission to find people. They don't have to be expats or have been American but find people who are really smart and bright, who can be equal parts of the team. And, it, the, and the goal is that it is nice and convenient that other parts of the world are cheaper than New York. And so you don't necessarily to live well. I mean, we have one of our iOS developers for HuffPost mm -hmm. was extremely talented and iOS talent is very well paid. So he had chosen a nice niche, but he was like, you know, making a lot less than my New York guy, but he was living in Sri Lanka. And I think he was living like, I think he lives like a king. Yeah. So, somebody told me there was an iOS cluster, which I never really go on that. See, uh, I, I, I've been seen as I look more, there's some really interesting talent in Africa. And I don't know why it's such a leap for everyone to realize that there's equally smart people. Like we know it. So someone should do a survey of like common perception of a Ukrainian programmer when they're in the Ukraine and then the same person when they're here in New York, just the fact that they're here in New York, somehow you haven't elevated. The point is that we have had a really wonderful relationship with people around the world where it's a monthly retainer is the economic agreement, which means no specs, no counting hours, um, they're used to being really toughly treated like that, where if they're sick, then you didn't work those hours, don't film me for those hours. And we have to agree very concretely on these specs that inevitably change, but there's all this pressure of just do it anyway. It's not that big of a change. And no vacation days. And when they realize the value prop from my side in working with uh, me and with how we did this is that you know what to expect every month. Mm -hmm. That doesn't change because you went on vacation that month or because you got sick. Um, you are going to get that much every month. And then also, you're going to be part of the idea process. You know, it's funny, but also I've seen it again when I'm finding a new team for the startup and stuff. People, they're incredibly timid and, and apologetic about giving feedback on the product. They're like, I'm so sorry to say, so please don't be offended, but what if it did this? That's really interesting because that's such a good observation about working in mixed teams. 
Uh-huh. Why do you think that is? Is it just because there are too many environments where actually with people who essentially have creative skills but they're seen as yes. not allowed or, 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 or never thought of in the feedback yes, it's some it's some combination of maybe they've been the natural mm. reflex is to be defensive because yeah. you're like if you're doing all the programming then aren't I the idea guy so you're saying I'm not doing a good job of my thing and it's defensive in an unhealthy and un- not useful way like people who are insecure and defensive are generally not fun to work for <laughs> you know? it's no, amazing it's how nice. many people are anyway and have managed to be successful but you can do better than that and then the other thing is that I think there's just that sort of condescending relationship with a contractor outside. So when they realize that quite the contrary, what a great idea and thanks for thinking this way and please keep thinking this way. I'm not just hiring you as a designer, but you're thinking about the business with us. As many ideas about how we should interact with Twitter and Facebook and commenting and all this came from around the world as it did the Soho office. But what sort of... Um balance of you know around the world versus New York was it basically just a very small core team here and then yeah that's that's the economics of the and the like managing producing a lot of work is ideally one developer here has somewhere depending on his skills as a sort of also leader and manager to some degrees and coordinator has somewhere between 3 to 15 uh, developers working with them. So one of uh, HuffPost's uh, most brilliant is Theo uh, Burry, who's uh, I'm very happy still at HuffPost, and he leads a very large team in a really efficient way because he has a guy, for example, Dmitry S. Salamaha in the Ukraine, and Dmitry and him learn to communicate really well, and they have deep mutual respect. Theo knows that Dmitry Salamaha is really smart. And likewise, Dmitry knows that Theo is really smart. So they're both bringing a lot to the table. And then Dmitry has a team of six people who really look up to him. So Theo can coordinate with Dmitry, okay, we're gonna orchestrate this whole huge piece of work. And, um, and he can do it at scale because Theo has that with three or four. Mm-hmm. Guys, so you start to do the classic thing of like, you know, little groups that report up in a sense. So it's really important to recognize that the kernel of this was there before I arrived, which is that if Ken Lair and Ariana had founded HuffPost as the only two co-founders, it would not have been the success it is. The most press tends to like ignore that there was a third co-founder who's insanely important and that's Jonah Peretti and um, Ken and Jonah work really well together in particular so did Jonah with Ariana to maximize but that what that move did is that Jonah is on the tech side if you have like a balance and a way over to the right is someone who's a purely idea person and some way over to the left is someone who just purely executes. Jonah leans way over here. He, I think he did take a JavaScript class once, you know? <laughs> yeah. But he's insanely creative and by having the tech lead not be an implementer but an idea person gave the right beginning to tech. Mm-hmm. The worst part of tech is where it's treated like IT and being and it's told what to do. So the metaphor like Jonah and I have agreed on over time is that if your CTO is a waiter, most often if tech is an important part of your business, you're screwed. Because you're telling them exactly what you want and please just go and get that. Instead what you need is your tech is the chef. And you say, listen, like, we want it to be a Thai restaurant with a flavor of this, and like, what do you think? And like, because then you can really put these things together. So for me, it was very important that the designers reported to me uh, that any product stuff ultimately I was ultimately responsible for, and that code and infrastructure were a responsibility, because you get another interplay when you make the product people 
separate from the infrastructure people because then they're totally disincentivized. They're not aligned to the same thing. The infrastructure people want the site to be up. Yeah. And so they drag their heels like mad on releases. Yeah. And they say we need to test it better and we need to like redo the code completely and everything when actually they're just making sure that they're never going to be disturbed on a Sunday night. Yeah, we had a meeting on Wednesday mornings at 2006 or seven, and it was the head of, basically the sort of head of systems, the kind of architecture person, the head of design, the head of production, maybe, yes. maybe kind of like the news yeah. editor or something, yeah. and it was, and the head of user experience, and it was like the most productive meeting. And when, it, when those things kind of fall under one person, then, and the groups are all insanely focused on growth is the most important thing, then you can set your risk tolerance, and then everyone knows we're going to launch this feature, but we really don't have the capacity for it, so we might have to shut it down quickly, or we're like, everyone knows that these are, we're going to push this to this limits, and it's going to creak on this boat while we do it. Um, but it's worth it because we're gonna. This could have us grow. Da da da. It just focuses everyone on being really fast. And what was the editor? What, what, what was the dashboard? What did it say? Everyone talks about you know how to use dashboard and what editors use and their yeah. tools. What was kind of different or innovative well, about so that? The philosophical core difference is that we were absolutely dedicated to making sure that there was nothing of an idea about the CMS that I would turn back to editorial and say, no, we can't do that. That's not how the system works. That would be very hard to do. We, in the background, whichever obstacles I saw coming that were gonna lead me to saying that, we started to rewrite that architecture to be flexible because that philosophy allowed us to have all the key editors became product people because they're the user of the product and they're smart and they're savvy and they're using other tools and so what was so important is that they were able to shape that product and we had um, we had a part of the roadmap dedicated to hyper efficiency for editors right so if they realized if you give me this click here that'll save me the three clicks that i have to do and i do that 30 times a day or 60 times a day we didn't just say, oh yeah, we'll get to that one day. Those ideas were on such a tight feedback to execution loop that you could, as an editor at HuffPost, have that idea on Monday and literally see it live Tuesday afternoon. That's an addictive process. It's all talk if you can't actually make it happen. Because yeah. if you tell editors, please be creative and think about what would be better, but whenever they put that energy and they never see it happen, they just stop. They're just like, whatever, I'm not doing it. But when they see them executed, it really happens. And so the HuffPost core DNA, there were a lot of attractive distractors out there that we looked at, oh, we could do this, we could do that. But what was core to us, and that I really loved, is that HuffPost would, have, would not be a pure technology company, but it wouldn't be a pure editorial company either that we would take advantage of being the best crossover in the world. So when it came time to live curate a Twitter stream about election or da da da, we should be the best in the world at that. And that is a really fun core goal to work towards. And what it means is that basically we were trying to treat every editor like a ninja, right? And the front page should not be automatically ordered but you should know what's clicking, what's just trended up, what's coming down, where should I have something on the page, it's been there too long. You should have a million cues, you should know that you're sending traffic to something that's not viral at all, or that you're sending traffic to something incredibly viral and you want to bring it up, or that you're sending traffic to something that has a horrible exit rate, you know? But, by, but I'm still amazed by how few editorial companies really use feedback because that's what it yes, is feedback. It's, feedback. Sort of, it's feedback it's absolute and it's tight feedback loop i am so proud that we in that office probably have 20 of the best seo 
and social experts in the world. And it's not that we hired them as SEO experts and we don't do any stupid SEO games or any black hat anything. It's just that they have this enormous traffic that gets applied to all these articles that give them feedback that shows Google's latest changes in a very obvious way. So when you win Oscars red carpet during the Oscars and when you click type tsunami and you're the number one result, that's insanely addictive. And then that you know why you want it and that you want it fairly by doing the right thing and linking to the right sources and being all over the updates on it and having this tool that you know how to use, that's a really thrilling thing. And so the relationship that HuffPost had between tech, edit, and design was really just tech and edit working together in the same room. Guys like Nico Pitney were amazing, but we had times where people left, and this is why I think it's okay that I've left, and also Nico is leaving as well. I think HuffPost has found its sort of thing that others can carry the torch on. And, and so Tim Dierks, uh, as the new CTO, is taking that on. And I think it's, it's something that has been defined enough that, uh, that it can flow. So I really hope it will, because cultures do change. But mm-hmm. um, How do you, do you, it's really engaging. So you've you let you, people in before you left, actually. I mean, when yes, you knew you were leaving, yes. you would come in and be able yeah. to, to, to carry on with that. Do you feel... How does it feel to leave when you've built something from, as you say, kind of uh, 30 million page views to... I'm five and a half, six years in, and that's about how long I've been in on things before. I think that the fun of, for me, is building a new house where there was nothing, and at some point you have the house and you're moving furniture around and re-architecting, and then at another point, you start to go a little more into cruise control. And so, um, what I'm doing now is much scarier, in short. I'm positive I could have continued to do what I had done at HuffPost, but I felt like I had sort of, I knew I could do that. And I'm pretty sure I can do this, but it's a lot scarier, and so that, um, it feels great to have, for me, the HuffPost thing, I mean, it's, when I joined, we were a top 5,000 Alexa site, and that seemed incredible. I couldn't believe it. Like, what a giant we were taking over. But we're now a top 100, mm-hmm. almost top 50 Alexa site, and one of the top 15 sites. And it's um, in the U.S., top 15. And so it's just a lot of pride in that having built something to scale hoping for it to do incredibly well as it goes into, I think that the plan for international is great. Um, Canada's launch did well. UK is a very competitive online newspaper environment. Um, Don't I know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody said to me, how has it never happened in the UK when you see Gorka, Nick Denton, who was yeah. in college with, in fact, and you see HuffPo, and, it's a, and it never really happened in London. And I said, because... The BBC, The Guardian, probably even kind of like Channel 4, etc. It was really, and Telegraph, it was just really hard. There were kind of four or five really good online newsrooms who were buying up. <laughs> There's not as much open space, but the France launch, for example, has seemed to go really well. So yeah. I think London's do, England's doing fine, yeah. but Canada did fantastic, and France yeah. is going to, and I think that the model Ariana's working on is going to, they're going to be at about double the traffic they are to today, which is insane at that scale. So tell us about what you're doing now. Well, tell us what so, you can tell us about yeah. what you're doing now. So um, I, 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 I could not be more excited. It's so fun. Um, the most important first thing is just an incredible pride in the founding team and original partners who are going into this. Eric Hippo was our CEO. Um, for the last year, but was always on the board. I think the last year and a half he was our CEO. Um, Ken Lair being one of the founders. Those are my two biggest partners in what I'm doing. And they, 
they're doing layer ventures as well as this. But um, we got really hooked. We, we really had a lot of fun, the, the three of us and the other people that I'm going to talk about, but building something together. And that's different from being what they're doing as angel investing, and they do that very well. But they're really good at, and from very different approaches, the way Ken approaches product is very different from how Eric does. But they have a, a yin and yang to them, where um, I've gotten incredibly good at using their moments, um, and then really executing and going fast and working with their styles. So, um, so it's in, it was, I'm just so excited. And then we have Jonah Peretti's involvement. And again, he's you know, running BuzzFeed and doing a great job with it. And, um, but at HuffPost, Jonah had already started BuzzFeed and I got really good at using that, those little bits of time that I could get from him because we've really been good friends for a long time now. Um, to do a walking meeting or do a, we are guilty of doing like 2 a.m. G chats um, where we both have kids and we both should be asleep, but we both have probably a, a, some like diagnosable sickness that has us online thinking about these things. And so Jonah adds just this creativity to the things we're doing and thoughts about viral and shaping a business. And then Greg Coleman will be involved in the incubator in particular. Yes. Greg is like Jonah, that when you're in a meeting with him, 80% of the time spent is in laughter. But oddly enough, you made enormous progress. It wasn't, it, it's like, maybe he has even more than Jonah, this like, he's already made, a, in, like he doesn't need more money probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what he, you know, so what he, if, so his philosophy is I better be enjoying what I'm doing and the working with the people. So he's ridiculously fun, but he's also incredibly smart. And so with Greg, Greg ha, is the best salesperson I've ever met. Uh, he's, he is, because he really can listen to people. And so we would go in, Eric, uh, Eric Hippo, Greg Coleman and I, and because of Eric and Greg's connections, we'd go and meet with the CMO of Johnson & Johnson or Pepsi or IBM. And it was like what we did with Twitter, mm -hmm. which is we came with a really specific and clear and exciting vision, but we wanted their collaboration. So it's kind of like we have this shiny great idea, but a huge recognition of that they're incredibly smart, so change it a little. What do you add to it? How do you tweak it? How do you make it fit for what you would like to see happen in the world? And, um, and that was how we tripled revenue in a year with Greg Coleman, is we were building actually to the core and selling social news, you know, as a, as a platform that was so interesting to brands to reach influencers, and we were really in a flow. And so that is going to be a vital part of what we do, is not sort of just throw a banner ad at the end and canvas thing, but think about how can these experiences with brands build towards your core anyway and give them access to the magic you're creating with the users. So just for kind of people who are not, you know, for many of you who not obsessively been following the kind of tech press, etc. At the moment, because you're of the current one. Yeah, the current one. Yeah. Well, I um, I'm dying to describe it, <laughs> um, but I think that I have to just stay abstract a bit and say that there's a few trends that matter a lot. Right. And that one thing that is so important is that um, people are becoming natural curators as well they're finding that their own mix of original content plus curation is is very powerful for their personal brand or for their corporate brand or for their passion or interest and that that's the right way to go about content so if you look at it like the the trend that feels super important i was talking about this with you know jennifer preston yes i know jennifer yes. well, yeah yeah 
So we were talking about how it's so interesting that UGC, even two years ago, it still meant like it's going to be like 4chan out there. You know, like good luck, disclaimer, UGC, spam and porn ahead. And that that trend is turning over on it. That it, it's, or the acceleration of that trend is astonishing. And suddenly there's a tremendous amount of incredibly good content being created and then being correctly curated and aggregated at scale. But it's too confusing. Understanding, I mean, my easiest example is understanding what Andy Carvin is doing. When you get it, you just like are probably a permanent Andy Carvin fan. Yeah. But it's too hard to understand right now yeah. at scale. And I'm, it, that's really interesting because I was thinking about this the other day. I'm thinking if I run Animation News Organization <laughs> again, every desk editor would be an Andy Carvin yes, because yes, you're yes. actually doing what a desk editor does yes, yes. in public. You yes. know, you're kind of thinking, what are the stories, how do I follow it, yes. how is this, you follow every aspect of the story, Yes. some of the conversations are private and on the phone, and some of the research is yes. out of public view, exactly. but all the connections you make yes. are done in so the street. So the slogan for Rebel Mouse is probably going to be, you are your community. That's essentially when I follow Andy Carvin on Twitter. That's what I get. I almost feel like I'm on the streets of Egypt. And he's not saying that I'm verifying or endorsing, but I'm just going to put a mic on the street. And all these companies, organizations, reporters, people with passions, personal brands, they are so good at giving you that directionalized mic and then adding context and flavor and opinion, et cetera, on top. And so Rebel Mouse is going to be incredibly focused on making that something you can do and understand at scale. Do you see the future really revolving around, you say, the personal brand versus, as it were, the corporate brand? Because, you know, again, someone who's worked in an editorial environment for a long time, that kind of balance of, and yeah. that relationship with symbiosis and how it works and yeah. where you get validation and authority and versus expertise from yes. is really interesting. And, yeah, yeah. You know, no. So I realized I was using a phrase that I tend to hate when people use, which is this personal brand phrase. And so for a moment I was like, oh no, I'm becoming one of those people who talks about personal brands. But um, if you get beyond oh, the overused rhetoric or hype words on it, I do think there's something very interesting happening because we know that it's better and more effective in media to make sure you can follow Andy Carvin than it is just to cover PBS Arab You know, there could be an account by PBS that covers a topic and that will be a lot less compelling to follow than Andy Carvin's account. So journalists and reporters in particular, it's like it's happened faster than anyone realized that the only real job interview question is well, how many followers do you have? The only real job interview. You know what I mean? Because if you have a ton, then okay, you obviously have figured it out. So please, we need those people. So I think that there's still pretend there's other questions, but that's almost like, like for HuffPost, I remember two and a half years ago, I told all the editors in sort of an all-hands-ish meeting that like, you can no longer afford to not be on Twitter. Some of you are still saying like, oh, I don't like Twitter. You can't be in this industry, much less this company, and make that decision. You have to look at yourself and wonder, do I want this path of life? And if you do, get on Twitter yesterday. Pretend you've been there for the last two months because it's desperate that you learn that. And that was something that was a little bit shocking to a few of the editors, but overall that was like, yes, that's who we are and that's our culture. And Ariane has been amazing at embracing it and going for it all in. And, you know, to her credit, she was the one that got us a very early meeting at Twitter when they were only 25 employees and we all went to coffee with Evan and her. 
and led to the right types of brainstorms with the teams later. She's always instinctively known that that's incredibly valuable. And you're coming into the space at exactly the time that you know, there's a, there seems to be a problem or a scale problem or something that's going on with big media at the moment where the valuation of real participation and generation of content by the community has for some reason become kind of a failed experiment. You know, that if you see Nick Denton, who's going to be talking in South by Southwest about it, saying, you know, comments suck and they have basically disappointed us. And I was saying, look, yeah. if this is the case, it is entirely your own fault. It's, and, and it's said over and over again, you know, we're not quite sure what the value of interaction is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it seems almost as though there's a part of the content industry which is peeling away and saying, yes. hey, we can reflect conversations about our content, we can still be on all of these platforms, but in terms yeah. of kind of putting it around what we consider to be our core yes. content, you know, that's potentially done. Yeah. You're presumably residing in the space that goes your the way. In fact, it reminds me that, and I used to, I would, it reminds me of a panel I was on three years ago, and I think someone from New York Times was on it too, and it was like a big media panel about identity in tech and social. And um, some large percentage of the time was spent talking about whether Facebook Connect is a good idea and who owns the user. And I secretly just delight in the fact that that's a conversation piece at all because it just gives us speed and advantage because I've never thought that anybody owns a user. And for me, it's a no-brainer that Facebook Connect brings in this huge social network with you. This is interesting because this is where, as a journalist, but somebody who pushed, I really pushed the social agenda or, mm -hmm. you know, I had to... Meg Pickles, who's a fantastic kind of, you know, social yeah. thinker to push it for me, luckily. But we, I was very, very keen on it. But this is one area where I'm now very interested, actually, in, as you say, you know, it's no-brainer because you get a scale. Yeah. Um, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, for sort of journalistically or just in terms of being on the side of the community or, you know, when you see kind of Google Plus all the ideas of, you know, uh -huh. what happens to, you know, what happens to the material, the interactions yeah. that are generated, uh -huh. and in 99% of cases it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. but there's 1% of cases, you mentioned Harry Carvin in the Middle East, etc, yeah, you know, yeah. now kind of if you're reporting in this post-geographic world, yes. in a really networked way, do you think that's never going to be an issue, the commercial companies who are not necessarily vested in the same ideas as you know the separateness of a, of mm -hmm. a press and the independence of a press yeah. whatever that may mean even if it's composed mm -hmm. of a community the more you distribute your content yeah. and the more you use third-party platforms that don't have as it were a journalistic Right. purpose at their core, yeah. you're then kind of in, a, in an area where you're using kind of tools um, seamlessly to do a very efficient journalistic job. Yes. But what you lose control of is you know, the ability to stop disclosure of source material, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. you used to have before. You yeah. know, if I kind of said, Paul, here's a secret, yes. Yes. you hang on to it, you're an yeah. editor, I trust yeah. you. Um, you lose control of what happens if somebody looks at your page uh -huh. or kind of constantly uses a social reader yeah. uh, in Yemen um, in yeah. a way that makes them vulnerable right. and they think they're in your environment because it's your yeah. content yeah. but actually you know if the authorities want I mean you know, it's right. in their timeline so that's kind of a bad example yeah. but on IM for instance. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that because I think the opposite is that the world is just becoming so more, so much more focused on real time Mm -hmm. That this is a sidestep of the thing you brought up, but it reminds me of like people are obsessed with, but how do I verify? Mm. Because yeah. real time and verification are not are at odds with each other in a hard way. If I have to go and spend a lot of time verifying each tweet, you know what I mean? Like Andy yeah. Carvin's retweets, you have got to understand 
assume that they come unverified. Yeah. And so real time actually helps you because if you've been reporting things that turn out to be wrong, if it's all about the time span of it took to update it. So if you tweet something or retweet something, but immediately retweet or tweet the update that that's off, then you're, everyone forgives you. In the past paradigm, you'd have to print it, and for 24 long hours, there was your lie or incorrectness or mistruth. Da, da, da. So the speed with which any person can access their community and their networks and navigate a network to find the interesting source is so vital mm -hmm. that I think that, you know, I'd like to think that as much as this data can be analyzed, etc., there will also be the corresponding WikiLeaks type of thing where technology yeah. protects it in a way and connects it and suddenly instead of the government having managed to make use of, I don't know, well, that all is, of those things, yeah. we've managed to make yeah. use of the like, That is really interesting because WikiLeaks was, you know, on a technological level probably quite advanced when they started doing it. It was put to me by somebody very close to the situation said, WikiLeaks actually would not really didn't really offer any technical protection. No. You know, agencies could no. get it like that. Yes. It was not actually that hard. Yeah. What it offered was uh, legal protection. It was a legal answer yes. because it used the net. Yes. And I completely agree with you and get your point when it comes to um, material. Yeah, because in a way, there's suddenly someone yeah. who felt they were witnessing something wrong. Yes. But give some to someone they yeah. could give it to, and yeah. that, in its essence, but is the, social. But that, but the thing about that is, you had Bradley Manning who self-disclosed over uh -huh. a chat to Adrian Mayo, yeah. and in some ways, some of the real-time stories that we're talking about now, it's kind of not the material that can be protected yeah. by being put through the yeah, network. So it's, it's individuals who are on the street, yeah. geolocated, yeah. interacting, and maybe just by following you, Paul Berry, as yeah. you kind of go around in your practice, yeah, yeah. that might put them in a perilous position. Yeah, so I don't spend enough time thinking about that <laughs> in particular. Yeah. Um, I, most of what Rebel Mouse is chasing is less the perilous situations. Right. I think for the non-perilous situation, it was just when you mentioned Andy Carvin, it's kind of one of those, as I say, there's a 1% yes. content. I hope that the battle back on that is that because it is public, it should be, and it should be harder to do horrible things secretly to people than it used to. And hopefully that is a good change in human nature. Ne maybe not. Like I remember that this issue has been in my head since like 96 when I was an undergrad and I was talking about uh, with a professor would the internet have helped curb the horrors of the Holocaust? You know, would they, knowing it yeah. was happening have helped and yeah. you can make very strong cases on either side. Yeah. And so I don't pretend to be an expert no. in it, but it is interesting, yeah. that's for sure. Well, it's kind of, it's amazing. I find it interesting. I'm not, I'm not going to dwell on it because I'm not obsessed by it, but yeah. I just think that, because I, I, I was thinking about it in terms of platforms and how particularly kind of journalism, yeah. broadly speaking, organizations think about platforms, yeah. which is generally speaking, I think, really bad. <laughs> and actually kind of one of the things that technology companies think about really well, you thought about really uh -huh. well, was the platform. Mm -hmm. That seems to me to be yeah. something where if you're going to innovate and do really yeah. well in this kind of content space, yeah. you, you know, you have to start thinking yeah. more about the platform and less just about the, you know, the yes. projects and stuff are the things that yes. make it work, but actually, you know, yeah. you need to kind of... Yeah, and Rebel Mouse's hope is to give next generation tools that a media editor type of person would traditionally use, yeah. but the disruption is giving this to other people. Right. So everyone. Everyone. That's, I've been building these tools for just an editor, and what I'm building shouldn't compete with HuffPost at all, but it should be a, a large disruption to how they've been telling their stories. And okay. is what I'm hoping. Can you, can you say a bit more about disruption to how people are telling their stories? Do you mean in 
format. I mean, right now they're starting, they're telling their stories better and more than they ever have before, but it's still very hard to understand that. And it should be quite obvious. So it should come together. It should just be, so, so there, that should all come together. All that activity you have out there should be brought to a single place where you can see, oh, that's the perspective of Maria Popova, a brain picker, or whatever it is. And I think, and so I've had a wonderful talk with her and shown her behind the scenes and she's super excited she's about it. And that's like my perfect sort of type of person to begin to work with to that dream tool of what would Maria have if it was free and powerful and she was immediately pulling in her community at the same time that she was achieving her mission and all her frustrations with the current platforms that she has to use would be solved. So that doesn't mean she leaves Twitter or Facebook at all. That's a great example because I was going to say Maria to me is like the She's like the kind of the feature section of Andy Carbon. Yes, <laughs> Maria and Andy represent like for me people who are figuring out what we're going to be seen as default. And I don't know whether that's two years or ten years, but that seems to me like they are ahead of the curve. I completely agree that if you have if you have an editorial staff now, an editorial yeah. staff, that's what it would look like. Yeah, it yeah. would look like real time, connected, yeah, public community-based, exactly. and it would look like incredibly, brilliantly curated, yes. diverse, interesting, yes. and deep. Exactly. So it's a levels. space, I think, that a lot of people are trying to figure out. So I don't think that I'm in a not crowded space, but I think we have between everyone who's on board as the partners and the team I have around the world and what I've learned, I think we have a really good chance to get the right mix. Very exciting. When, when, can we, when is it going to... I am trying to figure that out because we're like, oh, do we have that extra feature and do we need this plugin to be there yet or not? So, but if it's one month or three months, we're talking about that type of range. It's not a year later. It's, to, it's the weeks to months where plural on the months is painful to me, so probably not plural. Fantastic. This has been a Columbia Journalism Review podcast, produced by Granny Cart Productions. Theme music by Tim Hoyt. Visit cjr.org for fresh media criticism and to subscribe to our prize-winning magazine.